When Kaylee was a little girl, she had a fascination with brightly colored, squishy things, like, like stress balls and that kind of thing, you know? Now, don't worry, I asked her if I could use this story. She said it was cool, so I, I got the okay from the wife. So, <clears throat> her dad had this box, right? He's just sitting over there, Mr. Matt Dykes. He had this box with all these brightly colored, gummy fishing lures. And to Kaylee, they just looked like the best thing ever. But the thing about fishing lures, the astute among you might know, is that they just so happen to have these small, incredibly sharp, curved hooks, if you will, hidden inside of them. Almost as if they were specifically designed to look incredibly enticing, but also pierce flesh. Of course, these things are made for fish, but Kaylee being a knee-high to a grasshopper, she, she didn't quite know, understand that yet. <laughs> so, what naturally her dad said is, don't play in the tackle box. There's hooks in there. You will get poked. And if you did play in the tackle box, that she would get in trouble. So, the thing is, though, the thought of these glittery, multicolored worms was just too much to bear. So, as little kids often do, she ignored her father's warning and plunged deeply into temptation. Luckily, she, she was fine. She didn't get poked or anything. It was all okay. But she did get in trouble. See, what Kaylee didn't fully grasp at the time is that her dad wasn't just trying to hoard all the cool, squishy stuff to himself, but he was actually just trying to keep her safe. In other words, he had her best intentions at heart. Well, best, best interest at heart, I should say. So when we read the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, I kind of get the impression that Moses might have felt like Matt Dykes here, but on a whole nother situation, a whole nother level, I should say. So to give you some context, because it's not like Deuteronomy is a book we turn to all the time. It's kind of obscure. But uh, to give you some context, Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch. That's just a fancy Bible word for the first five books of the Bible. They kind of group them together, call it the Pentateuch. So it's the last one. So it's the fifth book in the Bible, if you're counting. And so it takes place after Israel had left Egypt and after they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and the book kind of reads like a collection of sermons by Moses to this new generation of Israel over the course of 40 days. And it finishes out with Moses' death, which Israel mourned for 30 days, and then Joshua leads them into the new promised land, right? So in the first couple chapters, before we get to our text today, Moses starts off addressing this new, young generation of Israel. Because at this point, pretty much everybody who had actually come out of Egypt was dead at this point, except for Caleb, Moses, and Joshua. And it's not, it's not an accident that it's this way, because the whole reason, if you remember, that they had to walk around in the wilderness for 40 years anyways, is because, frankly, they were too chicken to just go in and take the promised land. Well, everybody except for Joshua and Caleb, they were like, let's do it. Let's get after it. But everybody else, they were like, no, man, they're, they're, there's big guys out there. We're not that big, and they're scary. 
So, Moses starts out in the first couple chapters by recounting this very thing. The people of God didn't trust God to lead them into the promised land. And they actively disobeyed him at every turn. So in a nutshell, Moses is saying, all right, y'all, you remember how your parents decided it would be a good idea to completely disobey God? And even though he's the one that led us out of Egypt by parting the sea, and he led us by a pillar of smoke in the day and a pillar of fire by night, let's let's not do that again. This, This time, let's actually obey God Because when you think about it, he's got our best interest at heart. And for two, he's deserving of our obedience anyways. So at this point, Moses proceeds to tell them how to please God. So he goes through a couple of the Old Testament uh, commandments. The most famous one is the Ten Commandments. That actually happens like a chapter before our text today. And you, you know the ones. If you don't know the Ten Commandments, it's like, Love, um, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery, you know, etc. So he repeats the Ten Commandments to this new generation of Israel. And then he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Doesn't that just kind of sound like a a young dad just kind of talking to his rambunctious five-year-old? Like, all right. Listen, I'm going to make this super clear. Pay attention. This is like really important stuff. Get your listening ears on. Circle this, outline it, say it twice a day. It's actually kind of funny because the passage we're about to read, they actually did say it twice a day in, uh, in Jewish culture. They pray it in the morning and they pray it in the evening. And it's called the Shema prayer because the Hebrew word Shema is that word hear right there. I mean, it's like hear or listen. So they call it the Shema prayer and they say it twice a day. And you'll kind of see why here in a little bit. But anyways, I prayed it every morning and every night. So you can kind of get the impression that it's probably pretty important if they put that much emphasis on it. So what's the first thing that Moses tells them? The first thing he says is, is right here. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the first thing we need to understand is that the Lord is one. The Lord is one. The only thing is, is like, what's, what's that supposed to mean? Like, I, I don't call people one. I'm not like, Haley is one. It, does, it doesn't make a ton of sense. What's it, what's it getting at there? So, I did some research, and it turns out, very interestingly, the word translated one here actually means one. You wouldn't have expected that. They kind of pulled a little wool under my eyes there. But, yeah, it, it means one. So, then I was like, ah, oh, well, I guess I got to consult some dudes that are smarter than me. So I did. And there was kind of a consensus that it could mean a couple things. So let's kind of explore a couple of those things that it could potentially mean. First off, it could mean the Lord is one in the sense that there is no other God. Fair enough, that makes sense for the most part. So, because here's the deal, whenever the Bible talks about other gods, it always depicts them as lifeless stone carvings made by human hands, right? For instance, if you remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 18, this is a hilarious story. It's like the funniest story in scripture in my mind. 
where Elijah challenges the worshipers of this false god Baal, right? He basically is like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to figure out who God, whose god is the real god. So you guys, worshipers of Baal, you guys build an altar, okay? And then I'll build an altar. We'll put a bowl on it, and here's what we'll do. You guys, you guys can go first. I'll let you guys go first. You want to pray, and then I'll pray. And whichever altar is lit by God, well, that's the true God. So the, the, the worshipers of Baal are like, all right, well, fair enough. Let's do it. So they spend all morning, they're like, praying, they're jumping around, they're crying out to their god, Baal, and at noon, Elijah says this, and it's, it's pretty funny, because he says, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he is relieving himself, like literally going to the bathroom is what he's saying there. Or, or you know what, maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he's just asleep. He's got to get louder, wake him up, right? So then Baal's like, yeah, all these, all these worshipers of Baal are like, yeah, let's redouble our efforts. So they started like shouting, going crazy. They were cutting themselves. Just all kinds of chaos. So then Elijah just kind of walks over. He's like, you know what? Give me a whole bunch of jugs of water. And he just dumps them on the altar to our God, right? Just completely sopping wet. And then he just prays a little prayer. And the thing gets lit up like a nuclear bomb. So yeah, there's, there's only one God. That's what we get from there. But the other thing it could mean, and I think it contextually makes a little bit more sense, is that God is first above all else. And that kind of makes sense, because remember, the Ten Commandments come right before this, and it says the first commandment is, have no other gods before me. Right? So God is first above everything. And as we kind of go down the, the passage here, you'll kind of see how that plays out in the passage as well. It kind of assumes that God is great and powerful and above all things. So, the thing is, God's greatness commands love and worship. It's kind of like the Apollo 11 moon landing. So, if you happen to live at the time, and they were broadcasting on TV the moon landing, first time human beings ever stepped foot on the moon, what were you doing at the time, more than likely? I'll tell you what you probably weren't doing. Probably weren't mowing the lawn. You probably weren't going out to eat with somebody. You were like, if you had a TV, you were sitting down to watch that historic event. You were watching it. And if you didn't have TV, you went over to Jimmy Bob's house and you were watching it together because that historic event commands excitement. It commands attention. And God's kind of the same way when you think about it. There's literally nothing else that compares to the power, the majesty, the grace, the mercy, and the love of the one true God. So he commands love. He commands worship just from how awesome he is, right? So then, so what do we do? We see that God is so amazing and above comprehension and just blows our minds. So what do we do then? So we love him completely. We love him completely. So the next verse says, we're just kind of walking our way on down. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Does that kind of sound familiar? 
Because Jesus actually quotes this. He quotes this in Matthew 22, 37 through 38. So basically, there's a Sadducee lawyer who's like, now, by the way, Sadducee lawyer, that just sounds like pretentious upon pretentious, does it not? So I'm a Sadducee lawyer. But anyway, so he asked Jesus, he's like, which commandment is the greatest in all his dripping swagger? And here's what Jesus says. In Matthew 22, 37 through 38, he says, And he said to him, him being the, the lawyer, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So the astute among you have probably realized that Jesus quotes it a little different than the verse we have in Deuteronomy. Because what he does, if you notice, he says here, with all of your heart, and he says mind as well. Whereas in Deuteronomy, it doesn't say mind. So what's the deal? Is he just like forgetting what it's all about? So it's actually pretty cool that he does this because this gives us a better understanding of the initial meaning of the passage. He's kind of like doing the, the language work for us, so to speak. Because when he uses both the words heart and mind, he kind of uses those to reference the Hebrew word for heart. Because in the Hebrew word for heart, it doesn't actually mean, you know, like blood pumping muscle, and that's fairly intuitive. You wouldn't think that they would be talking about that in this context, but it actually refers to all your inner being, if you want to say it that way. So it's not just like your emotions, but it's also your thoughts. It's also your decisions. It's all kind of wrapped up in that Hebrew word for heart. So when Jesus says, Heart, and then later says mind, it's kind of encapsulating that idea. All your emotions, all your feelings, all your inner being. And likewise, the next kind of part in Deuteronomy talks about love the Lord your God with all of your soul. And again, it's a little bit different than what we would think of. Because when I think of soul, I think of like that movie, Soul, or I think that's the movie, right? Where you have the, the guy and he, you know... If you've seen that movie, that's maybe what you kind of think of. Kind of think of uh, like an ethereal, floaty kind of thing. But what it meant originally in that context, when they used the word soul, really kind of referred more to like a personhood kind of thing. So you could, if you wanted to, you could translate it, say, love the Lord your God with all of your being, all your person, everything that you are, really. Now the last word that's kind of cattywampus, so to speak, it says, love the Lord your God with all your might. And you're like, okay, well, that makes sense. Like, your strength, your might. Okay, I kind of get what it's saying, but the weird deal is that word is almost never translated that way as might. It's only translated maybe two or three times in the whole Old Testament. Usually, when it's used, it's translated like the word very. Well, that's kind of weird. That makes no sense. So love the Lord your God with all of your very? What's that supposed to mean? And it's the same word used if you go to Genesis and, and uh, after God finished his creation, he's like, and it was very good. That's the word used there, very good. And so what's he kind of getting at? And some people have translated it might, some um, way a long time ago kind of translated it wealth, but you, one could say that it is love the Lord your God with all your muchness. So this would include your power, your strength, your wealth, your talents, basically anything you have, right? 
So you can kind of walk down and be like, love the Lord your God with everything that you are internally, everything that you are externally, and everything that you have. So there is a completeness, a holistic worship is, is kind of the idea here. And it's not too, too difficult. I mean, even if you read the original one, you kind of get that feeling too. Without all the nuance and whatnot, you kind of get the idea that it's a complete and holistic worship and love of the one true God. So, and it's, it's interesting because it says it's, it's like a commandment to love, right? It's not like having an emotional feeling towards God because there's always an active part in loving somebody and in, in whenever it's referenced in the biblical sense. And so if you, if you remember, I like to think of uh, when Jesus is talking to Peter after his resurrection, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's emphatically like, yes, of course, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus immediately follows it up with, then feed my sheep. So it's not just a feeling. There is an action associated with the feeling. And so the unbelievable greatness of our Lord should motivate us to love him completely. The question then is, what does this look like? Where's a good starting place? Where do we begin loving the Lord? So what you have to start out with, you have to say, the first thing we got to do is to love the word of the Lord, right? So we have to love the word of the Lord. If you look at verse 6, it says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. When you think about it, it seems fairly intuitive. Because how can you love someone if you don't know them? It doesn't make a ton of sense. How can you make someone happy if you don't know them? It was like, you're like how could I love Kaylee if I've never met her? You know, It's, it's kind of weird. So one of the ways that we... We love God as we learn who he is. And I, I love how Moses puts this. He puts it in a nice little neat package. He's saying, internalize this stuff. It's important. Listen up. Right? It's important. Remember who it was that brought you out of Egypt. Remember, love him. And because he is great and he's worthy of our love and adoration. And remember to live in a way that pleases him. And it's a whole lot easier to remember these things if we love what he said, right? And in a way, we kind of have a leg up on the Israelites a little bit here. Because at the time, they didn't have a whole ton of access to the written scripture. Because if you think about it, so Moses just got handed Genesis about 40 years ago on Mount Sinai. So that's kind of a new thing that just God revealed to him. And then the rest of the books up to this point, so you got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are all written during Moses' life. But we, as modern-day Christians, not only have those books, we also have 61 other books, and they are so easily accessible. You can just pull it up on your phone. In fact, uh, version is a pretty swaggity uh, Bible app that you can get whatever you want on there. So we have the privilege of a much fuller complete picture of all the awesome things that God has done over the past several thousand years. We have a much more defined idea of who he is. 
So in this way, like I said, we kind of have a leg up on the Israelites a little bit here. We are without excuse, really. Because the creator of the universe, and I, we don't often think this way, and it's kind of a shame, I don't often think this way, but the creator of the universe, think about that for a second, the creator of the universe has decided to reveal himself in his word. And we, as finite human beings, have the ability to crack it open in a smooth, leather-bound Bible or, once again, pull it up on our handy-dandy smartphones. How cool is that when you think about it? That's so cool. Again, the, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end that was there before time began and will be there long after, he's like revealing himself to us in Scripture. And so the fact is that the love for the word of the Lord should spill out into our lives because of this. We should be so excited about it. So the next verse, verse 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So in a nice quippy little statement, the word of the Lord should be on our lips. The word of the Lord should be on our lips. When I was a kid, I was kind of annoying. And I still kind of am annoying sometimes. You can ask Kaylee if you think I'm kind of annoying. But the thing I would do is I would like, be interested in a topic. Let's say like guitar or something. I'd be like, oh, guitar is so cool. And I would just like know life on that topic. I would just be playing guitar all the time, thinking about it all the time, and then talking to people about it all the time. And it was just like the only thing that was going on for a couple of weeks. And that's, that's just how I am, I guess. I'm kind of weird that way. And it actually kind of annoyed Kaylee a little bit when we got married, but she's, she's grown to appreciate it, right? To- totally. <laughs> um, but I think that's kind of what Moses is getting at here, but about the word of the Lord, right? She'd be so excited, be like, dude, I got to tell you, what I read today is the coolest thing. Like that kind of like excitement about the word of God just should spill out into what we talk about. We should be like t- teaching our kids what it's about. We should talk to the random guy who's walking by when we're just chilling, hanging out at our house. We should talk about it. And then again, this is where the Israelites, being a very literal people, they say, when you lie down and when you rise. So they would pray this and they lie down and when they rise, rose, I guess. So... But that's kind of what he's getting at, this holistic just like exuberance for the word of the Lord just all the time. And so the thing is, it shouldn't just stop there. We shouldn't just be excited about it to discuss it. You know, it shouldn't just be, let me tell you about this cool thing, but it should have an active effect on our lives. So the word should also be in our actions and on our minds. It should be on our, in our actions and on our minds. Verse 8 says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Okay, so I'm going to pump the brakes a second, because I don't know about you, but I have no idea what a frontlet is when I read this. Like, what's a frontlet? Who, who talks that way? And so I did a little, bit, a little bit of research on it, and it's not a word that's used a whole ton in, in the scripture, but it means something like a band that you wear. Kind of, 
like at one point in time there was an armband, they called it a frontlet. And here they are talking about a frontlet you wear on your head. So the modern day equivalent would be something like this. This is the a hat Kaylee made for me. It says Shema on it. I just thought it was funny because they, the Jews literally do this. They take these little boxes and they put scripture in them and they tie it around their forehead and they tie it on their arms. So they literally do this. Uh, and I was just like, it's a little joke to myself for being a nerd, I guess. I don't know. Um, so the question is, like, should we do this? Should everybody just get their own little hats that says the word, the word of the Lord on it? I don't think so. Because if you've been following along, so far it's been talking about like internalizing the scripture and letting that come out in your life. So I don't think the application here is to get a hat that says words on it. If you want to, go for it. I have one. That's pretty cool. I think so. But I don't think you have to. I don't think that's what it's getting at here. It's getting at the fact that the word of the Lord should be close to the actions and minds of his people. Right? So we shouldn't just let this be tucked away in our brains, kind of like the, uh, the song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It shouldn't just be like, I'm going to keep that inside of a box and no one's ever going to see it. But it's really cool, but no one's ever going to see it. That, that's not the right application. It should be obvious from the way that we live our lives that we have spent time with God, that we love the word of the Lord. And this kind of bleeds over into the last point here. The word should be in our daily lives. Word should be in our daily lives. So verse 9 says, You shall write them, being the words, of course, on your doorposts and on the house and on your, on your gates. And once again, the Jewish tradition, they actually do this. They write scriptures on their doorposts. They write it on their gates. I think that's cool. That's kind of come back these days where you'll see, you walk into a place. Do we have any? Right? Oh, we have one right over there. Where the Lord's on the wall. Um, so it is, right? Not. Oh, not anymore. It used to be. I, I'm, I am crazy. So, <laughs> but it's kind of come back, right? Where you, you have this cool word art of like a scripture on your wall. It's kind of a cool thing nowadays. And uh, I think it looks pretty cool. So if that's what you want to do, go for it. But I think the idea is really that it should just be like all a part of your life, right? It's kind of like put a little sticky note on your window to remind you of something. That's kind of the feeling I get. When he's saying that, that it should be just something you're saturating yourself with, saturating your life with the word. So in a nutshell, we see that the word of the Lord should change our lives completely. The Lord's greatness draws us to love him, which then draws us to seek him out in the scriptures and to commit our lives to him as a living sacrifice of worship. That's why I read that passage earlier today. And in fact, that's really the whole reason we as human beings exist. Um, I love the way the Westminster Catechism puts it. A lot of fancy words, but check it out. It's cool. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In a nutshell, you're here to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we are created for. That's our whole purpose on this world. But if you're like me, and I, I sense that some of you might be like me, because I can't be that crazy. But if you're like me, you might have realized something while I've been talking. You haven't done this, right? And I haven't either. I'm not saying I'm 
cool Mr. Guy talking up here who's like a perfect saint or anything. But we haven't done this. We haven't loved the Lord completely. We haven't loved his word completely. And it's, it reminds me a lot of Romans chapter 3 where Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And that not even one includes us, right? We've not done good. We've not loved the Lord. We've not loved his word. We've not seen him as the one true God like he ought to be seen. And that leaves us in a bit of a situation. Because God is worthy of all praise and worship and devotion. And that's what he requires. That's what he deserves. Yet none of us have met that mark. Not not one of us. Probably haven't met that mark today. I'd be willing to bet. So we're really more like Israel than we would like to think we are. If you've ever read the book of Numbers, it's, it's kind of funny because you go through it and you see like the people of Israel, they're wandering through the wilderness and literally being supplied manna by God, right? If he stopped that, they would all die. And they're complaining the whole time and they're disobeying God the whole time. And you read that and you're like, man, Israelites are idiots. If I was there, I'll tell you what, I, I would follow God if I was there. But that's the thing, like we wouldn't though. We wouldn't obey God. And if you think about it, Moses didn't even do that. That's the whole reason why he didn't get to go into the promised land. He didn't obey God. He blew his top and hit a rock and when he was supposed to talk to it. He was angry. He lost his cool. And so if Moses, now keep in mind, this is Moses, the guy that God gave the whole law to. He's like, here's what you got to do. He was the guy that wrote it down. He like, has the muscle memory in his hands. Right? And if he couldn't do it, then what hope do we have to do it? You know what I'm saying? But there is hope. Because there is one man who did do it right. There's one man who loved God perfectly his whole life, and he lived perfectly without sin. And his name is Jesus Christ. The only hope that we have in this world to escape the wrath of God that we deserve, by the way, We deserve it because we didn't love him perfectly. The only way that we can escape the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin is to trust in Christ's atoning work on the cross to cover our sin. We've already seen that you can't trust another false god because they can't save you. They didn't save the worshipers of Baal because the other part of the story is after... Um, God lit up the fire of Elijah, the worshipers of Baal were all killed. Baal did nothing for him. It wasn't able to save him because he's not real. So false god can't save you. Buddhism can't save you. Hinduism can't save you. Taoism can't save you. Muslimism can't save you. Save you. Islam, that's what it is. Islam can't save you. And the thing is, you can't even trust that you're a good enough person to get to heaven. Because as we've seen, you're not a good person. That's the jarring thing about part of the Christian message is the fact that you're not a good person. We like to think of ourselves as a good person, but biblically speaking, you're not. You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. So the only hope we have is in Christ. And apart from him, we are completely and utterly hopeless. 
chances are, just by congregation of this size, there's some of you sitting here today who do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you were to die on the way out of church, your good works would not be enough to save you. They wouldn't be enough. So I ask you to look to Jesus and repent of your sin because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your love for us. That though we were yet sinners, hating you with our every word and action, you would send your only son to die a terrible death on the cross for our sins. I thank you for your greatness and your glory and that you are worthy above all things. Help us to love you, Lord, to love your word, because you are deserving of all worship and praise. Amen.